Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. So let's pray now and uh, go to him and ask the Lord to open up our hearts to receive his message that we may adore him, not just in this hour, but uh, all of our days. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you created us. You created the, the entire universe with the word. And Lord, you've created us as a special creation of yours to give you praise and the glory and the honor to be your representatives on this planet. Sin has affected us so much that we so often turn away. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and you lived that perfect life and and you were qualified to be our sacrifice for our sin. And so, Lord, we come today to adore you. We come today to remember your birth. We come today to ask you, Lord, how we can be more faithful to you. So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher today. Help us, challenge us to become more like you. And we, we thank you for these things that you're going to do in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it doesn't seem possible, does it? 2021 is right at the right at the finish line, almost done. And Christmas is Saturday. You ready for it? Some are, some are not. And on that day, the typical American tradition will play itself out, I would imagine, in the vast majority of families. Hey, Chris, the Christmas story is quickly read. A prayer is quickly said. And then the presents are passed out, complete with someone playing Santa. Different families pass out presents in different ways. And with some, everybody just dives in at once. Other people just kind of wait, you know, and you have your present, you open it up. Oh, it's great. Others just kind of dive right on in. And I love how the narrator in the Christmas story puts it when they open their presents all at once. He called the activity the cornucopia of unbridled avarice. But regardless of how the presents are passed out, what happens in many families? Some don't like what they receive. Like this ungrateful kid who was given 18 pairs of socks to unwrap. Or how about giving a live iguana or receiving that? Or how about nobody's favorite, the Fun Fam's original spider prank box? When you open a lid and a fake spider lunges out at you. Only be sure that when that person does that, that you have a camera trained on him or her. So what do we do when we get something that we really don't want? Like Ralphie's pink bunny suit from his Aunt Clara. Well, we could keep it out of a sense of obligation, depending on who gave it to us. Or we could sell it, maybe at a garage sale, but make sure Aunt Clara doesn't know about it. Or we could throw it away, or we could re-gift it to someone we think might like it. Or we could use it for the next Dirty Santa event that we have. So sometimes we just have to adjust when we get unwanted presents from family and friends. But what about when God gives his gifts to people who really don't want them, especially when it comes to Messiah? We read in John 1.11 that many of God's chosen people, the Jews, rejected his gift of Messiah. He came to his own people, and his own people received him not. But there were some who did, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, as we've seen over the past few weeks, 
what were the Jews looking for in regards to their Messiah? They were looking for a conquering hero who would lead the way to overthrow the Romans. But they didn't get that in Jesus. Simply put, Messiah Jesus did not meet their expectations. And so they rejected him. But lest we, in our hearts, if not in our words, rise up in judgment and say, in essence, how could the Jews have missed their Messiah? Let's be warned. See, many claim to have received the Messiah that the Jews, by and large, have rejected. But how many who claim to have received him fully embrace him? Some, perhaps, many many would say that they have received him by praying the so-called sinner's prayer. And you know what that is, don't you? Say, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I turn from my sins. I know that Christ died on the cross for my sins and rose again. God save me now for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, sounds like a good prayer. And many of you indeed pray this prayer are indeed sincere. But is that all there is to becoming and being a Christian? Is a person who merely prays this prayer a true Christ follower? Well, maybe or not. See, like the Jews who expected the Messiah to be a political leader to overthrow the Romans, many in our day expect that Jesus will save us if we just pray a little prayer and mean it with all of our heart and nothing more. But what does it mean that God will save us? Practically, anybody who claims to be a Christian in our day And in our culture, we'll say that salvation means what? That we're going to heaven when we die. So we accept Christ and his eternal benefit is ours. This is what so many people are after, just the benefits. And it's tragic that so many people believe this. We want the benefits of God's grace. But do we really want his gift, his Messiah? And so turn to the book of John, chapter 15, 9, 10, 11, and to see what Jesus has to say about, for example, joy. See, we say we want joy, but if we're completely honest, what we really want is happiness, don't we? So again, let's go to the Lord's words, hear what he has to say about what joy is all about. And starting at verse 11, let's look at this. These words I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, it's great to have the joy of the Lord, isn't it? Isn't it? But is it? See, with every passage of Scripture, we need to understand the context. And here's the context of Jesus offering his disciples his joy. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, according to Jesus in this passage, what is the way to get joy? It's obedience to the commandments of Christ. That's the foundation upon which joy rests. But we understand joy much differently than Jesus understands joy, don't we? See, for most of us, joy means happiness, doesn't it? It means having positive experiences. And it certainly cannot mean discomfort that comes along with obeying the Lord in front of those who are hostile to Jesus. From the very first episode of Christian persecution, 
to the last act before Christ comes back and destroys his enemies. Oftentimes, obedience to the ways of God in the presence of non-believers makes for unhappy circumstances. Peter tells us that when we suffer for doing right, the spirit of glory and God rests upon us. And it's in those times we can have joy because the joy of the Lord does not depend on good circumstances. It goes far beyond good, pleasant times. We also say that we want peace. Who doesn't want peace? But what do we mean when we say we want peace? And more importantly, what does Messiah Jesus mean when he offers peace for those who want to obtain it? So let's go back a a chapter to John 14, 27. And here's what he says about peace. Jesus talks to his men in the upper room right before he went to the cross. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So what's the context? First, it was right before he led his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will be arrested and tried and flogged and crucified. It's in the midst of that, Jesus says, I give you my peace. And second, he told them not to let their hearts be troubled or be fearful. It's clear that the peace that Jesus leaves his disciples is in the midst of difficulties, not the absence of difficulties. But what do we normally mean when we think of peace? We think of an absence of difficulties, don't we? And a great lessening of tension in our circumstances. Or a great big, ah, moment. We can sit back and we can relax. And we're all as well. But if we're not careful, we are going to falsely accuse the Lord when he allows or even sends difficult circumstances in our lives. See, God is all about developing Christ-like character in his people. He's not all that concerned about giving us pleasant, peaceful circumstances as we pursue our best life now. Paul also gives us God's counsel as how to obtain his peace in the midst of difficult circumstances. Remember where Paul was when he wrote Philippians. He was under house arrest in Rome, waiting to get a hearing from the Caesar. And Nero was the Caesar, and Nero didn't like Christians very well. It was in this circumstance here that Paul wrote these words in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How many times do we hear brothers and sisters in Christ tell us of the incredible peace that they have when they're going through excruciating circumstances. They don't understand it, but it's there nonetheless. It's the peace that God gives in the midst of our difficulties. We also say we want patience, but we want it now, don't we? But what is the mechanism by which God gives us patience? Altogether now, trials, isn't it? Here's what James says, James 1 to 2, 1, 2 to 4. He says, count it all joy, my brothers and my sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Other versions have it, patience. And let steadfastness or patience have its full effect or its perfect work, that you may be perfect, or other words, mature and complete, lacking nothing. 
So where am I going with all of this, you might be asking. Simply put, everything that we need and ultimately everything that we really do want is found in the person of Jesus, God's Messiah. Whether it's peace or trusting him to develop patience in us, real love, joy, or anything else that's desirable is found in a living discipleship relationship with Messiah Jesus. So let me review for us some of what I mentioned last week concerning Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples didn't really have it have a full understanding of who he was. They were expecting something else. Because like everybody else in their day, the disciples anticipated the Messiah as a conquering hero who would lead the charge to overthrow the Romans. And throughout Jesus' ministry, even after Christ's death and resurrection, the disciples asked Jesus a question. And, and Greg had mentioned it earlier today in Acts 1.6. After all of this, after his resurrection, right before he went to be with the Father, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still wanted him to be that conquering hero. So what was it that kept the disciples following Jesus? Simply, the longer that they followed Jesus, the more that they changed. And over time, the disciples began to see that Jesus as Messiah was not exactly as they expected. But his was something far more impressive, far more captivating, far more important than anything any of the disciples could ever anticipate. They eventually learned that Jesus is king. Yes, king of the Jews. He had a kingdom, but it was of an altogether different dimension. See, the disciples witnessed the death, the resurrection, and the return of Christ back to the right hand of the Father. They saw him ascend out of their sight. They saw him go into heaven and heard the promise of the angels that Christ will return in the same way that he went away from them. They knew that Jesus was coming back. And then came Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And among the disciples, the first disciples, and eventually all of the disciples, everybody caught the conviction that Messiah Jesus was God's gift that goes on. And he goes on in two ways. First, he goes on within the life of every disciple of Christ. And second, he goes on through the preaching of the gospel and making disciples to all nations. And so let's take a brief look at these two ways. God's gift and salvation goes on within the disciple of Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he does this with three aspects. And every one of these aspects is true of every follower of Jesus. Everyone. To treat all these aspects so with any depth at all will take us a long time. We'll run out of time. And the clock is so unkind here, you think. But let's look at several passages of Scripture to see how this happens, although we can do it only briefly. And the first passage of Scripture is in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so the first aspect of salvation that every follower of Jesus experiences is the grace of God through faith. The grace of God, salvation, is God's gift that he gives to a sinner when he or she places his or her faith in Christ. This is called justification. Justification. And we can look at it this way. Justification is what we would call like a past tense salvation 
We have been saved. From the moment a person places their faith in Christ, which means the repentance of sin and belief in the gospel of Christ and also the Christ of the gospel, God declares him or her to be in a right relationship with God. Jesus gave us great assurance in this when he says in John 6, 37, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if you come to Jesus, he's never going to cast you away. He's never going to throw you away. The first aspect of salvation is justification. Every true follower of Christ has been saved from the penalty of sin. And the penalty of sin, even as Jesus says, perishing in a place called hell. So a Christian will not go to hell. That's Jesus' promise. The second aspect of salvation that every follower of Jesus experiences is sanctification, that we become more like Jesus in our character. And we will look more like Jesus the longer that we live in Christ. We can look at this as present tense salvation. Because we've been saved from sin's penalty, now we have the privilege to become like Jesus. We are right now being saved from the power of sin in our lives. The power of sin. Romans 8, 28 and 29 puts it this way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. From the first day that we placed our faith in Christ, And until we go to see him, God allows or even actually sends circumstances our way of all kinds of circumstances, and he works all things together to fulfill his purpose in our lives. And what is that purpose? That's become just like Jesus, Christ like this. Everything that comes into our lives is for that very reason. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. For the Lord, in your life, my life, there are no accidents. There are no mistakes. And he wastes nothing when it comes to working his work in us. As you look back over your life, think about the pleasant circumstances. Think about the excruciatingly painful circumstances. There's not one circumstance in your life and mine that has not been already filtered through the loving fingers of the Lord, to make us like Jesus. And Paul said it well in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice the progression. God does his work in us that we might live out the good works that he wants to do through us. He's already prepared for us. And so from day one of salvation, The Lord has been working in us that we might become just like Jesus in our character. That's called sanctification. This is what God is after for all of us who know Christ. It's not just a matter of, oh, I prayed the sinner's prayer. Now I'm good to go. No, sanctification is what God is after in our lives. And he is saving us right now from the power of sin. See, the more that we look like Jesus and live like Jesus, the less of a hold sin will have on our lives. Do you agree with that? 
Not that we'll ever get to the place where we are sinless. Not that we'll ever get to the place where we will never sin again in this life. That will happen later on, on the other side. But we can, by the power of His Spirit, live in victory over sin. Every time the temptation comes, rears its ugly head, we can put it down. We can put it down every single time by His Spirit, by His power. Do you believe this? I see some head nods. Do you believe this? Yes. Yes. This is the power of God within our lives. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, lives within us. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, He lives within us. We don't have to sin again. We yield ourselves to His working, His power. So justification, past tense salvation. Sanctification, present tense salvation. And now we come to some glorious good news as well. Future tense salvation, which is called glorification. God is going to glorify his people. It's amazing. One day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. In 1 John 3, 1 to 3, talks about this very thing. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us, and by the way, that's true. Why are we trying to become like the world? Why are we trying to become like and have the world like us and love us? It says here, the reason that the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Amazing passage, isn't it? And when it's all said and done, when we get to the other side, we will be like him. And for the first time then, but certainly not the last time at that point, we will see him as he is, and we won't die by beholding him. Every last smidgen of sin that resides in our hearts, the very core of our being will be eradicated. No more sin in our lives. And what a glorious day that will be. But now, we have false teachers in our midst in our day who tells us that we can have our best life now. Wrong-o! <laughs> because when we get glorified, then and only then will we have our best life. I'll say it too. Joel Osteen says that. He's most infamous for that. False teacher. Anyway, as John tells us, we don't know what that will be like. But I, you know, for me, I can't imagine what it would be like to not have any impurity in my mind or in my desires or my attitudes. Indwelling sin is tragic, it's real, and it's horrible. But because of God's gift in Messiah Jesus, his suffering servant who took away my sin. I have hope, and so do you, that when we are glorified, we will be absolutely pure in every fiber of our being. And John makes things practical in this letter, doesn't he? He tells us so many words because we're going to be glorified on the other side, get to the other life, that we will be glorified there. And so because of that, we get a chance to practice on this side, that we can become pure. We can purify ourselves even as he is pure as he was in the days of his ministry. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. We've got work to do. 
We purify ourselves as he himself is pure. Now, do we do it of our own strength? Absolutely not. It's the Holy Spirit who lives within us. But again, the point is to live a pure life before God. Our hope in Christ and what we will become is our incentive to live a pure life, as Jesus did while he was here in the days of his ministry. We want to be like him, don't we? And so now we have it. God's gift of Messiah Jesus through the Holy Spirit goes on in our lives. Having saved us from the penalty of sin, he is currently saving us from the power of sin and will gloriously save us from the very presence of sin. This is what he's done for us. Isn't that a great gift that God has given us? What an unspeakable gift is Jesus, our Messiah, and it's all found as we go to church, right? It's all found as we just live a good life as a good person, right? No, Aunt Finnegan, Vanna. No, it's all found in our discipleship relationship with Jesus, the person of Christ. So the second way the gift of Messiah goes on is through the preaching of the gospel and making disciples of all nations. And as we know, preaching the gospel is not limited to the pastor's role on Sunday mornings. Did you know that? I hope you know that. It's everybody's responsibility, if you're a Christian, to go and proclaim the gospel, to go and preach the gospel to others. And we call this the Great Commission, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, and making disciples. That's the Great Commission. As we know, the Great Commission is not merely a message. It is the message about God's gift of Messiah. The Lord Jesus told us to pass this gift on. But why should we preach the gospel of Christ and make disciples of Jesus? Why should we do this? Why should we obey the Lord and teach others to do the same? I suppose there's a a number of motives. One motive is, of course, that every person needs eternal salvation. A saving relationship with Messiah Jesus to save a precious image bearer of God from going to hell. And that's a reality. We know this. Another motive can be that when a person follows Jesus in this life, life just gets better. Where would the world be if there were no followers of Jesus? Let's think about that for a second. If there were no Christians in the world, what would the world be like? I'm not talking about just right now. I'm talking about from day one. The pro-life issue that we so struggle with right now started back in 300 AD from Christians. Infanticide would still be a thing. All around the world, it is kind of now, but it will be much worse. Or what about, for example, even the founding documents on which our country rests was upon Judeo-Christian principles? Or what about even the scientific method itself that we get true science from? That was developed from Christianity. This and so much more would not be existent if it wasn't for Christians to roll up their sleeves and work in the marketplace and work in the culture to expand the kingdom of God. But there's another motive for proclaiming the gospel and making disciples that which far away out-trumps every other motive, and that's the glory of God. That is what ought to be our driving force. Now, my beloved and I, we've been slowly reading through Ephesians during our morning devotions. And we spent several days literally slack-jawed over what we have been reading. It's amazing stuff. It was part of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 15 to 18. 
And allow me to summarize for you part of this prayer of Paul that has absolutely captured us. See, Paul requests that the Lord would give his readers the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know him better. He goes on to say that having the eyes of our hearts enlightened or possessing true spiritual insight in what was to follow, then he gives two requests. And the first request found in verse 18 is that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's one thing that just is a wonderful thing. In other words, that we might be convinced to the core of our being that God has indeed called us to salvation. But the second request is what has absolutely blown us away. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. My brothers and sisters, do you understand what a priceless gem this is? Paul prays that the Spirit of God would give us sure knowledge of the riches found in how God sees his saints, which includes every person in the body of Christ, regardless of how much you contribute or not contribute, regardless of how you see yourself or not see yourself. If you're in the body of Christ, he sees you as his saints, as his holy ones. And how does God see his holy ones, his people? He calls it, he describes it as his glorious inheritance. His inheritance. We are his inheritance. Now, what's an inheritance? It literally means that which is possessed by a lawful heir. In spite of our faults, in spite of our failures, in spite of our sins, God sees every one of his people together as precious and glorious. We are extremely valuable to him. He has cleansed us, and he will be glorified in his inheritance in the kingdom on the other side. When it's all said and done, when we're all together with him, he's going to see us as his his glorious inheritance. So how should this motivate us? His people to be about performing the only task that he has given his church, the Great Commission. And you know that, right? You've been here for a while. You know that the only task that God has given his people, the church, is to fulfill in the Great Commission. Simply put, why this should affect us and why this should motivate us is this. The more precious imagers who come into the kingdom of God, who come into the family, the richer, the more glorious his inheritance is. See, without you, if you're a Christian, God's inheritance is not as rich. And with you, God's inheritance is that much richer. The gifts, the talents, and even more importantly, who you are, not merely what you can contribute, enriches his inheritance. So we, as his, as his glorious inheritance, were purchased by the blood of his son. His blood is a infinite value and worth. And every person in our circle of influence who is not in the family of God, think about this, is a potential enricher of God's inheritance. And the more glorious his inheritance, the greater is his glory. What an incentive to do this. John in his vision in Revelation 5, 6 through 10, sees 
the glorious riches of the Father's inheritance purchased by the blood of Messiah Jesus. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the greatest motive that we can have to fulfill the Great Commission, to enrich God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And so what can we say about these things? Let's enjoy the gift of Messiah Jesus as he is, not as we would like him to be. See, sometimes when people look at Jesus, I don't know about you, I know you never do this, do you? Sometimes downplay some of the things that, that, that you don't like about Jesus and really exalting the things that you do like. You know, Jesus always kind of pointing out sin. Yeah, I really don't like that part. But I really like the part where he says, I love you. You know, we do that, don't we? We tend to. See, Jesus is God's gift to the world. Messiah was the Father's suffering servant, and we're in need of his cleansing through the shedding of his blood. He is Lord and King, and we are his servants, and he demands absolute obedience of every one of us. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride, and ours is to prepare ourselves that we may be ready when he comes. May the gift go on in our lives with the hope that we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And because we have the hope in the hereafter, we will purify ourselves in the here and now. And may the gift of Messiah Jesus go on in the lives of others as we passionately desire to see the glorious inheritance of our God enriched through the preaching of the gospel that we all do and the making disciples of all nations. By the way, we have brown bag lunch afterwards, so if you want to come and talk about making disciples, let's go do that. Again, this is the only job the Lord Jesus has given his people to do. And as we close the message, let me give you the lyrics of a song that goes way back to the 1980s. <laughs> it was sung by Sandy Patty, and maybe some of you have remember her, maybe you've heard of her. And the chorus captures the dynamic of how Messiah Jesus is to be experienced. God's gift is to go on both in our lives and the ends of the earth. Because they are not inspired, these words, this chorus, I'm going to change a little bit here to make it more biblical. And so to end our Christmas 2021 series, let's apply the words of this song. The gift goes on that God may be glorified. The Father gave the Son. The Son gave the Spirit. The Spirit gives us life so that we can give the gift of Christ. And the gift goes on. Where are you in this? Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we are 
speechless as we contemplate your gift to us. Messiah Jesus, the one whom (laughs) didn't meet expectations concerning your people. Lord Jesus, you were rejected because you didn't meet their expectations. You had something far and away more important to do, like being our Savior, like being the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. Lord, we know that one day you're going to come back and you will be that conquering hero that they had expected a long time ago. Even as we heard today, Revelation 19, you are going to come back and you're going to destroy all your enemies with a word, just like God, you created all things with a word. Lord Jesus, it is you who we serve. It is you who we are related to by faith and repentance. It is you who we want to serve. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to to more fully receive who you are in our lives, to not downplay anything about you, to be able to say, yes, I appreciate this, and I appreciate this, and I appreciate everything that you are, and then to live our lives as though we believe this. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to live the kind of life that would be pleasing to you. Lord, may we never quench your spirit. May we never grieve your spirit. May we always be yielded to your spirit that we might live lives that are worthy of being called Christian. I thank you, Father, for these things. And I thank you for right now as we turn our attention to another couple of acts of worship, which is our giving and our singing. I pray that we will do these things because you are worthy and because we offer to you our worship. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.